You're listening to the Detroit is Different Podcast Network. Right from my city, yeah, you know that's how I roll. Love from my people, yeah, you know that's how I flow. We excellent, excellent, we rolling, rocking, we rocking, driving, we driving, shining, we shining. People, you are here with She's a Genius Podcast. Today, we are so elated to have with us Rihanna Anderson. And actually, I want to make sure we're clear. It's Dr. Rihanna Anderson. That's right. Thank <laughs> you for joining us. How are you today? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing really well. How are you? I am phenomenal. Great. I am glad to be here. I'm excited about all the wonderful things we're going to talk about today and just your journey. So, I mean, let's just cut right to it. Let's do it. I was reading your bio, and one thing I love how you mentioned, you said you were born and raised for and returned to to Detroit. Yes. I love how that was worded. You know, I just had to put that in there really quickly. So you're from Detroit. Just yes. tell us a little about, about Rihanna, your story. Who are you? Yeah. So I, I think the thing that I tell folks all the time to know me is to know I'm from Six Mile and Schaefer. So I think in Detroit, people are very clear about sides. So I'm a West Side baby. And then you got to talk about your uh, approximation to a Coney of some sort. So I was the L. George's Coney Island baby mm. on Six Mile and Schaefer. Mm. And that was just right down the street from my house. So um, that for me was this centering, this grounding of being in a space where I actually didn't know what the West Side meant in growing up in it, right? So like you you heard stereotypes about the differences between East and West Side. Mm-hmm. You saw that there were some income perhaps differences or like house differences, but you didn't really know the history of that. Mm-hmm. Um, really until I've, I've come back recently. I didn't really understand just how dynamic that that shift was, how dynamic the and intentional this, um, this resource differentiation was between the East and the West Side. Okay. But I was a product of it. I, I was a West Side baby and, okay. and um, uh, went to some of the traditional West Side schools. So went to Bates, went to Renaissance. All right. Um, was a part of this pipeline of educators. Who, <coughs> Shout uh, out. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You can't, you cannot. You know what? Also, <laughs> let me just tell the people, you had me on a green mic. So I think this is all intentional because you are a green person through and through. Well, well, but you are yeah, on a yellow yeah, yeah, mic. Yeah. You're on a yellow mic. So we'll get to that oh, in guys, one don't bit. don't <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to why the yellow is important in just one minute. But um, no, my whole family went to cast. So I was actually like the I, the shame of the family. They oh. were like, you went to Renaissance? Like, right. That was not a good thing, uh, let me just say. But Let's say the alumni game for Cass Tech <laughs> is strong worldwide, yeah. okay? You be in Ghana, somebody here in Detroit, they're like, oh, Cass Tech? Mm-hmm. Around the world. I'm in D.C. They're like, oh, yeah, I heard of Cass Tech. Yeah. So, they don't okay. say what they've heard, though. Let me just be clear. Ooh, you know, we won't get into that because we just know <laughs> that <laughs> 
It's only two people, the people that went to cast and the ones that wish they did. It's true. I did did wish that I went to cast, and my mom said, are you going to get on that 4 a.m. Dexter bus? I said, no, ma'am, I'm not. I'm going to go to the school five minutes down the street, and that's exactly what happened. And real talk, you know, real love for Renaissance. So, (laughs) seriously, I have relatives that went to Renaissance High School as well, and I actually did have interest in going to Renaissance when I was in middle school. Um, But we will, you know, just... Keep it there and just say we have love for Renaissance too. Now, Rihanna, keep telling us. So you went to high okay. school at Renaissance and then what happened after that? Okay, so then I was in school for the next uh, millennium or so. So um <laughs> went to the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor after that. Okay. Go blue all day. Okay. Um, and I was there during, I think, a really interesting time. So I, I came into the university as a freshman, um, learning about affirmative action, and actually, while entering, not being pro-affirmative action because of the experience that I had Hmm. at my schools going um, to Bates and Renaissance. I thought every Black child had the same type of opportunities and also grew up in a community that was caring and loving. Now, to be clear, like I did have some things environmentally that were amiss, right? So we, I always talk about this idea of memorials okay. and seeing so many memorials in our neighborhood around these posts. Why would someone have flowers and bears and things for someone? Oh, it's because they've, they've been killed. And we saw it so frequently that you would just know that death was around you. There was this idea that death was wow. ever looming. And there was only one reason that I didn't succumb to that, which was the the family. Like my family was just very protective and was like, you're not getting involved in any of that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that, you know, the West Side was without its problems. And certainly Six Mile and Schaefer um, presented some problems for my family to the extent that they decided to move out of the area and, and eventually outside of Detroit. But... Um, Fast forwarding to the idea of affirmative action, I thought that everybody had these opportunities, that everybody was exposed. And then my first week (laughs) in a chemistry class, I learned quickly what that meant. Mm. Um, The division of um, myself from other classmates, the the, uh, preparation that folks had to go into week two that I didn't have. And I was like, but I went to one of the best schools right, right. for black people. Like, right, how is right, this right. possible that I'm not prepared? I'm a, I'm a child of two educators. How is it possible that I'm not ready for week two of chemistry in my freshman year at the University of Michigan? So it was a shock. It was a shock. It was a wake-up call. And it, it was a time, again, as a freshman, when I was making a decision I'll never forget my first semester, I was declining all of these opportunities to go into these uh, black organizations. So a lot of people knew me from Detroit. They knew that I was involved in like Detroit City Council and and a lot of things at Renaissance, student government, et cetera. And so they were, they're saying like, clearly you're going to continue that activism here at Michigan. And I was like, no, I'm going to focus on my work. I'm going to, again, be somebody who's trying to just get prepared for that second week of chemistry. I want to be pre-med. I want to be a doctor. That second week was the wake up call that I needed to say, wow, like inequity like is, is ever present. It is something that even for the most prepared, educated black child that comes into the University of Michigan, they can't do this. Like this is not something that they without the support, without that support, without the resources that are provided right. on a campus. Right. So would you say your experience of going through that is kind of what directed you into what you currently do and I know we'll, we're skipping over a little bit, but I just had to ask this question. Yeah. You know, being a professor now at that same institution, yeah. 
is that part of what directed you in that direction? Yeah, I, I always credit the family and education as a dual factor kind of a tornado of like what made me. Tornado. Okay. <laughs> it has to be tornadic, right? There, you know, it's not, nothing is done uh, happenstantially. Nothing is done fluidly. Like it, 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 it takes sometimes some inclement weather, uh, some storms to get you to where to you need to get, be. That's real. Okay. That's real. You know, and that's an incredible way to look at it. Now let's go back now. Okay. So after <laughs> you went through that experience, you know, that second week, because some people are deterred at that point mm-hmm. and drop out of college. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, this is not for me. It's too hard. I can't do it. It's a lot of intimidation. It's a lot of pressure. What did you do to keep you moving forward? Yeah. So... Again, there was this idea that these organizations started to knock on my door and say, like, where are you at in the struggle? And so I I eventually said, I'll go to a meeting or two. Okay. And say yes to the call. (laughs) Yes to the call. It it was on me. There was no way I could have, like, denied it or declined it. And I tried to push it back Mm. just to say that, I, you know, I came here for a degree and that's what I want. Not understanding how important activism and movement orientation is to your whole self, to, mm-hmm. to your development, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what, going back to your original question about, like, is that why I'm doing some of the work today? We need children who are whole beings. We can't have them do just one thing or the other. Black children have to see themselves as black children, which allows them to be their full selves all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I did absolutely take that same perspective and, and, grow into the person who said affirmative action is being challenged my first semester at the University of Michigan. I have, I have seen the light within one week mm-hmm. of how important it is to continue this fight. And so I, I had a really unique privilege to come in with affirmative action being in the Supreme Court case and, and being able to go to D.C. in March and leaving out of the university my senior year when it came back to the state as a ballot initiative. So I saw all three years of it. I was on the front lines of it um, mm. by the end. And, and it was such a important shaping experience from 2002 to 2006. No other, no other years went through what we did um, because we saw it from beginning to end. And it, it shaped my activism in a way that... Um, I can only just give, wow. you know, gratitude for wow. and, um, and learn so in, much from. You were interfaced with it directly. Yeah. You were dealing with it on a day-to-day, you know. Day-to-day media panels. Like, you know, I, they are still, my phone number is still attached to some really? uh, press calls that I uh, saw, you know, from University of Michigan. I've tried to scrub it and you can't scrub it from the internet. But my, my, essentially my name my reputation is is still tied to the activism work. Okay. And and that for me is an important piece where people, I think HBCUs are an incredible resource and, and incredibly important for people's development. And my 2002 to 2006 development at Michigan was part of like an incredible response to what systems are trying to do to black youth and black students. Right. And without me going through that, right, 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 I don't think I would be who I am today, for sure. Wow. You know, in affirmative action, a lot of people, you know, skirt past it, don't talk about it, and talk about the benefits. And you have so many people that are saying, you know, it's not a good thing to have, and it's not a good, you know, reason to have it inside of school. So in your own words, especially for listeners who are tuning in and maybe a younger audience who don't really know 
what affirmative action is, point blank. They hear, can you break it down and tell them since you were so direct in your face <laughs> with it? Really, we're thinking about two things. So one, what is the historical account or the historical thing that has happened to people like you? And I, I keep it broad to people like you because affirmative action was created for white women, right? So the, it, it was created for women and the majority of whom were white getting benefits that related really clearly and directly to feminist cause. So, so white women benefited in a lot of industries. So uh, the employment, uh, it, like the labor force was a huge space in which affirmative action really benefited white women first. So anyway, it's talking about groups generally getting the historical context of what has happened to oppress and, and go against the advancement of certain groups. And then the second piece of that is the response. So how can we actually do something about what has historically happened to these groups? And in direct response to these feminist and civil rights movements of the 50s, 60s, 70s, you're seeing this, this response, this counter, well, we're trying to affirmatively create action that's going to go against what we've done in the past. Now, somewhere in the United States of America, someone said that these things are done and over, and we should stop creating systems to try to redress what happened in the past. So the thing that I always say that I have to just say right now is if you can show me where in the United States we are, where we have been actually racial. So if we're post-racial now, mm -hmm. that means that at some point we were racial. So somebody point that out to me. Right, when were right, we right. racial? Mm -hmm. After the civil rights movement, you, you show me a time in which the things that people were fighting for actually happened. And then I'll say, yeah, we're ready to go ahead and drop all of these things like affirmative action and the things of the like. So point to me <laughs> during the, the decade or the, the, the movement by which there were no gaps in education, there were no gaps in wealth, everyone owned homes equitably. You, you tell me where that was and I'll go ahead and pack up my stuff and say, you know what? I don't need to march anymore. You're right. You're right. It goes back to in correlation where you said there were support groups and programs on campus, you know, whether it was the birth of affirmative action or not. These initiatives have been birthed because there was a need. There was Absolutely. a gap. Exactly. There was a cause. So that is where the purpose comes from. You know, and a lot of people may think it's just, you know, showboating or extracurricular. No, there's a cause connected to it. There's a reason why it was ever created. And to be able to look at it from that light, people can be able to understand, okay, it is a support system. Yeah. It is a resource to be able to help individuals thrive and do better. As you said, you know, those gaps, you know, those differences. So... You know, let's go back. You said, you know, you had this experience when you were an undergrad. So then from there on, you know, tell us real quickly, like, what else went on with your education? <laughs> Again, I was in school the rest of my whole life. Um, <laughs> so after, after University of Michigan, it was clear to me that my education was unique and that it was incumbent upon me to give back as much as I possibly could. So I did Teach for America in Atlanta. All right. Taught first and fifth grade babies there. Shout out to my Grove Park Ooh. Elementary School kiddos. All right. Some of whom I've started finding recently online and it's just a bit like, some of them are like 27. Wow. I'm like, what are you talking How about? How does that make you feel? How was I just... <laughs> How was I teaching y'all? I don't understand how that works. Right. Um, like, you just jumped over me. You You're did. older than me. You all married and stuff? Like, how did that happen? But anyway, <laughs> um, so I taught for two years, did a year of research um, in the D.C. Baltimore area, 
doing some psychology uh, work and then um, got my PhD at clinical and community psychology at the University of Virginia. So Charlottesville, if you want to get into that, we can talk about what Charlottesville is and how that experience was to be a grad student there. Wow. Um, I was able to um, do a clinical residency at Yale and then a um, fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania in psychology as well. So that was the extent of my training. I was um, well-trained and had a, a wealth of experiences. And in virtually every city I went, I saw the same wow. phenomena. The same phenomena. It didn't matter what school it was. It didn't matter if it was South, North, Ivy, private, public. I saw the same phenomena. Really? Yeah. So is that what led to the trajectory of where you are today? I, I think... Um, I, I try to learn from every day. I try to learn from every experience I've had. And there was a third grade Rihanna who drew this children's center and she called it the Kid Dome. And she was like, well, I'm going to have educational and behavioral health services and all these different things for kids in inner city areas to be able to thrive and do great things. Wow. And since third grade. <laughs> third grade. I have the picture to prove it. Yeah, so thinking about how... I, I really believe God puts something in you to to manifest and to do. So in, in third grade, I was given this vision of creating the Kid Dome, a children's center in Detroit, um, of putting together like behavioral, educational, business-oriented things into one place, and then did things throughout my, actually as a, as a youth in Detroit, was able to intern on the city council and do a number of things to push forward even some legislation and like pockets of money to go towards this dream. And even though it's started to take shape and look a bit differently over time, so I, I've, I'm trained as a clinical psychologist and I'm now a professor, which is something I, I actually didn't know that I was going to be, and I never wanted that vision, that, that responsibility, but mentors shaped me and said, here are some of the ways that we see you benefiting the community and not only the, the physical community of Detroit, but the community of scholars and scholarship, okay. like your, your type of perspective on strengths-based approaches, family-based approaches to black psychological issues is something that is unique and, and really needs a space in this work. But the the interesting part is one position that I had, one of the jobs that I had put me in a city where I was listening to a sermon while at that church. They were talking about the dreams that were put in us from a long time ago. And that third grade vision came back into my mind. Wow. And like it took me to take that job to come back home. Right. Right. Where like I had originally didn't want to come back to right. Detroit because I wanted to like, first of all, be warm. Let's just keep it a buck and a okay. half. I wanted to be warm. I mean, I'm reminded I mean, about it every day listen, this week. Listen, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I wanted to be warm, but I also was like, you know, I'm young. Like, let me live my best life. Like okay. I, you know, Detroit had a lot of great things for me when I was growing up, but like, I know that there are, you know, clubs or like w- just whatever in these other cities that I want to experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard that sermon and I was like, if you don't take your tush back to Detroit, Michigan, where your purpose is tied and like where wow. the vision is, at third grade was like, you are supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be creating spaces and places for black children to grow and thrive. And that 
has been reified. So you've seen the need in other cities and people are telling you in these other cities, we need you, we want you, but your purpose is specifically for Detroit. Wow. And I love the fact that you were committed to that and you listened to the call. Amen. Amen. You listened to the call. And then what is so tremendous about how God operates is a vision doesn't have an age. A vision just is yeah. just given to you. Yeah. And it's not something that other people could see or understand, but it's given to you. As you say, you were in third grade. Yeah. You wrote this down. You put it away. Fast forward after you've graduated college, you've seen it. It's brought back to your remembrance. And I was going to ask you, you know, like in middle school, in mm-hmm. high school, what mm-hmm. did you see yourself doing? Yeah. Yeah. So going back to like that chemistry class, that was all for pre-med. So I've, I've always I wanted to, yeah, yeah, I've always wanted to be a, a clinical psychiatrist where I was able to see clients um, as a medical professional. Uh-huh. And then I started learning about what uh, people do to black children to keep them still and quiet, which is to over-medicate them in some respects. Hmm. And I wondered how we could not only just treat some of the behavioral stuff without medicine, but also treat some of these more social and climatic kind of issues, right? So if if discrimination is tied to 25 plus outcomes that are negative across the board, so, you know, folks are talking about, well, black children do X, Y, and Z. I tell my students in class, can you draw a line from something else to what black children are doing. So is it that black children are doing these things at higher rates or is it that discrimination causes black children to live in environments where they are doing these things mm. to cope or to, you know, distance themselves from these types There's of layers things. to it. There's layers. There are a lot of lines that come before, well, black children must be the cause of it because that's the common thread. No, no, no. There's actually quite a few more common threads. And so I, that's, where I'm coming back to this idea that um, there are things that we need to be doing to treat the behavioral health problems that we're seeing manifested in our population in ways that don't necessarily utilize the same, here's some medicine and deal with it that way approach. Right. So as a child, you always knew that you wanted to help people within the (laughs) clinical realm, but now you are a professor and you are teaching and you're going to the core as much as possible. Tell us about some of the courses you teach. So I have developed a Black American Health course where we get to dig into some of the more systemic and structural issues facing Black children, families, and communities. Um, This is my second time teaching it this semester, and I've been asking some colleagues to to guest lecture um, for some of the the courses. And it's just been a really amazing series of courses that people have come in and just shown a light on these structural level issues that are facing uh, black children and and seeing students in my class when their eyes open and they see it. Mm -hmm. And then you get the email after. And then I actually just got an email from a, a student who I had last year asking about stuff. Like once you see their eyes open up, you understand that the purpose of being an educator is to expand not only people's knowledge, but like you are now replicating what you want to do and what you see a hundred times over. Wow. 
And, you know, I wish I would have had your course when I was undergrad. <laughs> and, you know, just the perspective where you're not, or you're not just there just trying to show up and yeah. say, hey, let me just read you something from a book. For sure. You can tell that you have done the work, you've done the research, it's, you're able to relate in different degrees. But in addition to that, you're bringing other individuals to the table to be able to speak from their perspective. Yeah. Um, which is very prevalent today where we are in America, in the world. You know, we've been facing a lot of different dynamics and factors as it relates to race. Um, but one more area that has been, you know, taboo for so many years is dealing with mental health. Mm-hmm. And mental health is very, very near and dear to my heart because I believe it's not only something that um, needs to be discussed, but so many more people are dealing with it than we could ever imagine. Yeah. So, you know, in your day-to-day life as a professor, I know that you are also the founder of an organization yourself that you have began to support and surround mental health, yeah. embrace, yeah. right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I actually have two, Candice, so we can start with embrace, but I got a whole nother one we could talk about Get after that. Get into it. Let's hear it all. <laughs> yeah. So the the Michigans and the places like that, you know, Teaching is an important part of what we do, and it's one part of it. So we have a number of things that we do um, to improve the knowledge of folks, which includes, you know, writing articles, books, um, applying for grants, doing research, et cetera. So some of the, the research that I conduct is a clinical program called Embrace Engaging, Managing, and Bonding Through Race, which is essentially if black folks are already having the talk with their kids Mm -hmm. and I have therapeutic strategies that can help people talk to each other, Mm -hmm. why not bring those two things together? What are a couple that you can give the listeners? Just a couple of quick strategies you would tell them. Yeah. So I think that the first thing I always say is that black families are already doing the hard work. If you're having conversations with your children about race and racism, like you are doing an incredible job and that's hard. So, you know, my hats go off to the people who are doing the hard work every day, having to explain the Trayvon Martin situations of the world as as they come on TV. So as a clinician, I think some of the things that I think about are, are you talking to your kid in a way that's declarative, which is like, when you get pulled over, put your hands on 10 and 2. All right, that's, that's a good strategy. You know, like that's something that we all have been told at some point. Everybody sees it on a TV show like that. That's a really common strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's declarative. So I'm coming from an emotional space. Have you asked your child how it feels that they have to put their hands on 10 and 2? Have you shared what it feels like for you to have to mm-hmm. keep your hands on 10 that's and 2? Have you? It, there's this one really excellent example of this. The New York Times op doc series that so they had a, a series like of like five minute videos. You see this father recalling a story in which he was pulled over with his son in the back seat and he had this meta moment where he was like, My hands were on ten and two and I was looking at the cop, realizing that I was afraid, but then I looked in the back mirror and saw that my son was also afraid and I'm trying to manage all of this at one time. But those are the things that we're not actually talking about with our kids. We're we're going back to the, but have your hands on 10 and 2. Mm-hmm. So from a from a clinical standpoint, I am asking the questions of how does it feel to keep your hands on 10 and 2? What is it like the last time you got pulled over? Has there been a time where you had your ten, hands on 10 and 2 and it didn't work? How did you feel about that? What did you want to do about it? So these probing questions that are getting more at the emotion and the experience of it and how unpacking that with someone, whether that's your parent or a therapist, 
can actually help your emotional well-being to to come into a better space. Mm, that's really good. That's really good. You know, that strategy can go really far in many ways. You know, just thinking about the scenario of the tenant to or being pulled over by a police officer. Within the last, I would say, five to seven years, it's put brought on a whole different effect of just men and women, you know, Absolutely. think about Sandra Bland Absolutely. as a female and it's because she didn't have her blinker on, Absolutely. you know, it led to her life being ended, Absolutely. you know? So just that whole dynamic, you know, when I hear that, I just get chills, you know, about two weeks ago, my cousin was mm. with my aunt they were in a car and the police pulled my aunt over mm. and they had my cousin get out of the car, mm. you know, and it just brought a different way of looking at it you know it's no longer just like oh you just get pulled over you're like oh okay caution let's have this talk you need to know what to do and how to respond but like you said those layers of how it made you feel before or how it made you feel when you're going through it but even just hearing somebody else's experience and kind of help that person that they are pulled over they are having this experience of knowing how to deal with it how to control their emotions in that moment exactly so I think that's incredible so with embrace you know I know we've talked about over time, you know, and you work with families. You also say you work with not only the children, you work with the parents. Yeah. One-on-one. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So one thing that I I love about Embrace is that oftentimes when adults come into spaces with a child, they're seen as a parent. And so a lot of the talks that um, people will attend or a lot of the programs that people engage in, think about them as this parent to this child. We recognize that not only is parenting a very challenging thing, parenting a a, a child of color, incredibly challenging, but likely them as individuals have not had the opportunity to unpack some of the things that they've experienced as both adults and children. So we get we get stories of, of people who have not shared something from 20, 25 years ago. It's the first time they've ever said anything. And you watch their body physically slump down after they said something because it's now off their shoulders. Wow. The weight is physically gone. And they're like, wow, I haven't shared that story ever. And we're giving them the time to process, to orient, to, you know, unpack and they can do it with us, so then they can do it with their kid, and then they can do it with other people. It's, it's a door to emotionally unpacking some of the things that we as black people tend to bottle up yeah. so that we're not showing our weakness, so that we're not uh, creating vulnerability, we're not airing dirty laundry. But once you get in the habit of being able to get that out of your system, we call that or internalizing, right? Where you've internalized stuff, you have it so bottled up, that's wearing away at your body. It is physically eating at your ability to be healthy, to sustain yourself. It is what we call weathering. Like it is breaking down your body and its ability to keep you healthy, happy, whole, which is why one of the reasons that we see some of these uh, life expectancy differences, right? There's, there are a host of things that are happening in our body And from a psychological standpoint, if we cannot release some of those things, if we can't absolve ourselves from the damage that we've been doing for the past 20, 25 years, then we're going to see a a health uh, component attached to that as well. So So all that to say, yes, we have parents, but we treat them as adults. We treat them as individuals. We treat them as humans before we kind of turn the page and say, well, how can this processing help you in the parenting of your child in the in these discussions with your child I appreciate that I believe that now not believe I know that that is 
instrumental ingredient that people need across the board, regardless of race, but especially when it comes to those that are from an African-American, you know, um, community who are African-Americans and who deal with so many other dynamics and trauma, you know, the conversation that you don't even know is the experience you had that is considered trauma, Yes, you know, and being able to just stomach it, keep dealing, keep moving forward, you know, having experiences, having, you know, whether it's a single parent household, whatever that experience can cause different types of trauma, you know, or being able to have experiences like within a school or within a neighborhood and some of the things that kids are exposed to and see, you know, some kids, you know, coming up and seeing their siblings killed in front of their face, you know, or seeing, you know, just traumatic things happen, but not being able to talk about it not having it shaped in a way that they're able to go get that support yeah. to deal with it. I mean, I just think about so many people who, like you said, unpack it and it's like 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Think about the people who have never unpacked. That's right. Who's never let it out. Who've never, you know, felt comfortable experiencing that therapeutic um, opportunity to talk to somebody about it. Why do you feel, or just from research mm-hmm. and just experience, but why is it that so many families, you know, don't consider going to get therapy? Yeah. Yeah, that it ties in, I think, to the, the second initiative that um, I engage in. So a colleague and I met in grad school at a conference and we talked about the stigma that is a part of our community. Mm-hmm. And what we tried to do with our Mental Health Minute, which is a psychoeducational um, Group, So we we have videos that we put out, like a minute or two video, and then we actually have a podcast and a few different resources that we put on as well. I've watched a few of those. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. They're very corny and fantastic and wonderful. Um, (laughs) Not corny. (laughs) Well, our intern called us corny yesterday. We were like, are you kidding? But we are. It's true. Anyway, um, (laughs) but the, the point of that is to say we recognize that part of the stigma is simply not knowing what it looks like. So so one thing that people might envision that therapy looks like is you sharing information about you and that person judging you, telling you things that you need to do to get your life together, maybe going home and telling their partner about, listen, I had this client today and they did X, Y, and Z. Like people may have a number of things that are going on in their head. And so something that I, I like to do, not only in my clinical practice, but also just in life is to really understand that people have their experiences and their, their mindset for a reason. So if you, you know, we, we call them defense mechanisms. We call it, um, sometimes, uh, even, um, I'm sorry, I'm slipping on the word. What is it that I'm trying to say? Oh, uh, manipulation, right? So sometimes we we use manipulation in a really negative way, but you were just talking about trauma. If you think about someone who has to literally manipulate their environment so that they are no longer feeling what it is that they have experienced from this trauma, Mm -hmm. like that's smart. It's actually really smart to manipulate the environment or other people to like to feel safe, to, to feel happy, yep. whatever. Right. So when we talk about what black people have done with respect to mental health, there have been situations historically where you protecting yourself, not sharing information that you have a family, for example, right? Like not opening up and saying we have a family because then you'll be split up mm-hmm. or not saying things like um, I'm having 
pain in my back because you could be killed on the field if you are complaining right. too much. Right. Not sharing important information about yourself has been a really smart way of, of survival for us. And we've learned about that as people continue along survival, survival, as people continue along the centuries or the generations, like you have found that not sharing information about both factual and emotional things has kept you alive. Wow. That is deep. That's significantly deep. Yeah. Deep, you know, because I think about, um, one of my very, very incredible instrumental role models and very phenomenal women who is doing it, Taraji P. Henson. Mm-hmm. And she has recently launched foundation in honor of her father, Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. And when her foundation was first founded, you know, I felt it be a relief just hearing her yes. come out and speak about her experience with anxiety, her yeah. experience with, you know, mental health and somebody in her stature, her platform, but just being bold enough to be mm-hmm. able to communicate and talk about it was a relief, Yeah, you know, because I've had my own dealings with, you know, having depression, yeah. having experience with dealing with anxiety. Yeah. And it's something that as she's even this, you know, mentioned where it's not talked about. Right. Like if you have an ache in your back or if you have an That's ache right. in your foot, you're able to tell somebody about That's it, right. you know, and you go to the doctor, you get it checked out, you're getting the prescription, you get it prescribed of how to deal with it. But when it comes to mental health, you're not saying, okay, your mind, your brain, that's a test to your body. You should go ahead and talk to somebody and get some experience, you know, clinical physicians who can actually help you work through it. But as you mentioned, a key thing of survival, you know, survival level, what are people going to think? All right. If I tell somebody this, how are people going to judge me? If I speak out on this, you know, what's going to happen? And you have those thoughts clouding your mind where you keep it to yourself and not getting that help that you need, getting that support system to help you continue to thrive. Because that's a hindrance within itself of just playing that conversation in your head, like, okay, how do I get help for this? So I'm so grateful that this narrative is changing yeah. and individuals are now talking about it, conversations being had because now so many more people who are secretly surviving and keeping anxiety and depression to themselves are, nobody would know. Yeah, that's right. And being able to go get that support and help so that they can help the longevity of them li- their lives and also be in a healthier space yeah. as an individual. So yeah. with that, you know, I'm just grateful for what you are doing with Embrace. I'm grateful for what you're doing with Initial Health Minute. And just in your role as a professor, you know, just all of that together, I would imagine, though, takes a lot of balance. Oh, she heavily, guys. Hopefully that came up on the mic. <laughs> yes. As we're talking about mental health, yes. we're talking about, you know, just being a healthy being. What do you do to make sure you are balanced with yes. all that? Yes, yes. That's a, a fantastic question. One that people ask me often and without people asking me and making sure that I am doing that, I would absolutely run myself ragged. And, and that's why people have to ask me because um, something as banal as lunch like if it's not in my calendar it doesn't happen Mm. so it's it's that level of just grind and like running around and just trying to do one more thing like one more email and then that turns into another response and then my lunch hour is gone so or hour is a joke but uh, my my lunch whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) the 10 minutes is is gone Mm -hmm. so um 
you know, having people to continue or having the Google calendar remind me like, girl, it's, it's your time to eat. Thank you so much. Right, right, right. right. Thank <laughs> so, you, Google. Thank you, Google. Appreciate you. <laughs> um, so having people and uh, actual reminders in a calendar can be incredibly helpful. Um, I, I'm a planner, so my day looks very packed out on a calendar, but I, I do ensure that there are things like Bible study and the gym and like just making like call your friend. Like I, I put those things on the calendar because if it's not on the calendar, it's not happening for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I'm also working on not having things on the calendar. So I have a spring break coming up this week. And I know a lot of people think that spring break means that nothing is happening. They also think that summers mean that professors have nothing going on. That is the like most opposite thing on the planet. Right, right, right. That is our time to say like, yay, we get to sit and do all the things that we need to do. But on Friday, I was like, what would happen if you don't have anything on your calendar? So you're, you know that you're not working, but you're going to wake up and say like, what am I going to do today, Detroit? Like, what is there to do? How can, how can I do whatever the heck I want? Eat some really bad foods and just like get, get, get it. Like, how can I do something that makes me happy that day? Mm-hmm. So I am on the one hand, a very, very scheduled and, and thoughtful person about my time. Right, right. And on the other, I am trying to open up the opportunities for life to just happen and to, to be um, able to be flexible. Okay. All right. Flexibility, you know, and I'm listening to what you shared. You mentioned a couple of things, not only having a planner and having your schedule with Google, but you said talking to your friends, yes. working out. So would you say these are some things that help you recharge? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, that's a, it's actually a really important word to think about charging. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I call it maintenance, but it's this idea that I am someone who would drive a car until every light is flashing. And even then I'm like, I can just make it to Ann Arbor today. Like it, I can, like me. yeah, I can still make it. <laughs> and meanwhile, the dashboard is like, girl. And I'm like, uh, just like one more trip. Like it's fine. So that's what I do to my body. Um, that's what I do to my mind. I go until the lights are flashing. And these past few months, I would say... Um, October through January, I was sick virtually every week, every week or every other week. My body was like, we don't have it. Like we just don't. And we don't know what you're trying to do, but like, we're going to remind you that if you don't maintain your systems, they will shut down. Right. Right. So from that experience, you know, because I can relate to a lot of things you just shared, especially relates to the car. You know, I'm like yes. the gaslight, anything like, like, oh, I got a little bit in me. Yes. Ain't the gaslight on. But like you said, can I make 45 minutes driving right. in? Right. Right. Oh, I'm, and then at that point, I'm stressing myself out, right. praying the whole drive. Like, oh, I could have just pulled over. That's right. Um, But mm, it goes right back. That's the word right there, Candice. But go ahead. Yeah. Because it's just pause went ahead so recharge is you know i've been really dealing with that lately because it relates to like your car you got to get a tune up Mm -hmm. you got to put the gas in the car Mm -hmm. you got to do all these things to keep operating Mm -hmm. and i was like you know what i take i have to take a step back and really be intentional and also observant Mm -hmm. to what i'm doing how am i recharging Mm -hmm. daily every night i have to charge my phone up that's exactly right other than that it's zaps out on me and I'm like wait a minute I'm still going I need that hot spot come back on but I'm like okay well if my hot spot just went out of my phone that might be a sign that I need to just take a break right now too it may be time to go to bed 3am it may be time to just recharge my body and be able to be able to just be a better person yeah 
take care of the body that take care of me, that's you right. know, and be an advocate, not only be an advocate, but practice what I'm preaching. That's right. That's you know, right. being able to practice it. And it's a lot of times that's a, one of the biggest challenges. So, cause like you know, the tools, you know what to do, but being able to apply it to yourself, yeah. that's that daily discipline, yeah. you know, of knowing better, doing better. Yeah. Um, but being human. You know, mm-hmm. like you said, like I just want to do what feels good or mm-hmm. I'm just trying to not go to the gas station. Mm-hmm. I have it on my calendar certain <laughs> when I want to go to the gas station. That's I'm right. like, oh, you know what? I don't need to get gas to tomorrow. I'm just not trying to do it. But overall, I'm, you know, learning the importance of listening to your body. Mm-hmm. Your body is going to tell you, mm-hmm. you know, silently. Mm-hmm. Relax, mm-hmm. breathe, mm-hmm. chill, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to tune in to that is very, very key. So one more question about you being a professor, though, you know, you have an imbalance, you having, you know, different initiatives you're involved in. But not very often you have an African-American female who is young, who's thriving mm-hmm. in front of you. That is a professor that you can really just sit and have that one on one with and just talk about that professor world. And that's just something you don't really just see often happening, Mm -hmm. but let alone just be able to have that one-on-one conversation with them. One question I want to ask you is, what are the pros and cons of being a professor? Yeah, let me start with the cons real quick, because it it pecks on, I think, so well to what you just said. Um, So a lot of people will reach out to me, a lot of people reach out to me. Sometimes it's a bit too conversational or colloquial because they think that I am like not too far in age from them or like, oh, that, you know, I have this, this look or whatever that, that is just like, yeah, I could talk to her. I can spend her time. And what I try to remind people, and I, I call it popping the hood. What I try to remind people is, is that the first six years of a tenure track position is a very uh, tenuous time. It, it is full of us trying to get very large grants of us writing quite a bit of us trying to to do our roles very well and so if there's a person who comes to my office and is like I just want to talk about this experience or like what it's like to be like this it's my privilege and my pleasure to be able to talk about those things but I get that in such a large quantity, not only from the university that I'm at, but we're in a a time and space where people reach out from everywhere. I'm getting national, you know, tags on Twitter or yeah, social media or like emails. Literally this one young person has found me from London and is just like trying to talk to me all the time. And I'm like, if I'm already working an 80 hour work week and people are trying to contribute a 15 or 30 minute call for them, that's not a lot. But for me, I'm I'm looking at it in totality and I'm like, I am being um, taxed in ways that my colleagues aren't. Mm. And that is going to not allow me to get tenure. And then I won't be a professor for you to talk to. Right. Mm. So that that is the that is the con without question that there are, you know, study after study shows this. So it's not me. I'm not I'm not a unique person in this way. But to your to your point. I am young. I'm kind of riding this social media wave. Like I'm, I'm someone that people see in this light and they're able to, to come at me, I think, in ways that are across universities that might be a, a bit more unique than other people. Mm-hmm. So that, that is by far the, the biggest con that if I had more time to give to people to, to have their concerns met, like that would be beautiful. And it, it, it just, that time doesn't exist right now. Mm-hmm. 
But I do think that the pro is, and, and in particular, um, I mentioned going to or having a position in another city. So I was a professor at a, a different university before Michigan. And um, I took that position and it was clear that it was not a good fit for me. And I was already somebody who, to another question you asked, was not saying I wanted to be a professor. Like I, I had ambitions of working in a city and, and doing behavioral health services in a city. And then advisors and mentors said, you, you should really think about going into the academy. You mentor well, you write grants well, you write papers. Like this is something that you do well. You should really consider it. So after going on the market, I was very blessed, very fortunate to get a lot of offers. And that was the first thing that I was able to tell that story of to people. Like, it is possible. You can get a job, even in a market where you are being told overwhelmingly you're not going to get a job. Like, mm -hmm. you, you can. And here's my evidence of this. Mm -hmm. So then I took a job, and it was not a good fit. And now you're hit with this question. First of God, like, why did you make me move all the way here? Wow. Like, what was that about? Okay. You had me take this job that I didn't even really want in the first place. And now it's not it. Like, what is that about? Okay. First and foremost. But then you're looking at all these people that you've told this story to. And you're saying that God led you here and that, you know, there's a reason that you're supposed to be in the, the academy and, and blah, blah, blah. And things are falling apart in front of your face. You are being thrown under the bus actively. You're seeing it. You're seeing yourself be a token in real time. And that was the last thing that you wanted when you took this position. Mm. So you're like, how am I going to get myself out of this? Mm -hmm. I summarize all of the rest of the story to say that God got me in it. God got me out of it. And that story was also a testament to people because I said, if God wants you to do something, he won't God, take you. God will God, a right. You're not going to get left. And, and I, I, the vision that I get is being held like that. God is holding and protecting and surrounding you with positive energy. Because if you think what you're going through is bad, God can show you what bad really looks like mm -hmm. if God were to let go of you mm -hmm. completely. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. God is a, a, a wonderful parent to us. Mm -hmm. So I was being carried and taken to this new opportunity in this new space. And I use that story to tell people who are coming after me, you are never going to have to sit in a position where you are being talked about, are being lied to, are being ripped apart at the shreds. Your purpose is not being uplifted. You don't have to stay in those spaces. Some people are going to teach you and tell you, you better be grateful for that job. Like, oh my God. It. Well, like, oh, you got a job for, you know, three years. Maybe you need to pivot at the third year or like maybe just sit through it for six years. And I was like, God, this is not what, this is not what you have for me. I already know this isn't it. In week two, I wrote down, this is not where I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Like I, I knew in week two, again, that's, an, huh, that's interesting. Bring it full circle. Another yep. week two. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Anyway, so week, week two here. <laughs> when you were in college. <laughs> right. And now, and now full, circle. full circle. So the, I share that story because the, the pro then is that my story of getting to and getting through the academy is one that is not just I you know, grinned and bared it or like I, I am suffering through or like I'm, you know, not happy and oh, this is just tearing me apart. That's not been my experience. It's hard and it, it is incredibly taxing time wise. But when I'm writing a sentence that's like, 
such a strong, bold sentence about black youth. And I, I like throw the pen down. I'm like, that's going to get you to grant right there. That line right there. <laughs> Seriously, it's the dorkiest moment in, in black history. But like I wrote a line and I was like, that's it. That's the line that's going to get you your money right there for those children. Wow. Or I left, a revelation, right? Y- yes. This. Or like I left that university, went to a better university and have just had blessing on blessing on blessing on blessing on blessing happen after I listened to God say move. When you listened. Right. When you took that step. So, so that's what that was about. Like God was walking, making me walk out what faith really looks mm-hmm. like. And me sharing that narrative with folks didn't make me a failure. It didn't make me look dumb or silly. It, it has made people realize I too don't have to be in situations that are right. toxic for me. Right. Setting it for yourself, voting and going for you. Yeah. So how do you differentiate, though, your voice and Ooh, God's voice? Now that, girl, that uh, we might have to call me back in three more years for that one, because the, the question of why I even took the job out where I took it was it, it's still something to this day. I'm like, I don't know who I heard. Yeah. But I, I, God was actively not speaking to me in that time. So I was just consulting pastors and friends like, what should I do? And again, I do think it was part of my purpose. I don't want to, or part of the it journey. It shapes your story. It definitely shapes the story. And again, I heard that sermon at the church that was in that city. And I was like, man, I, I know I have to go back home. And it reminded me of what I was supposed to do when I got here. So I definitely think it was part of the story. Mm-hmm. But it really requires us to be silent enough, be still enough, where if we don't practice what silence and stillness is. So if we don't shut off the TV or shut off our social, do do things that allow us to know what silence is and allow us to be discerning enough of what Rihanna's voice sounds like, what God's voice sounds like, what a social voice sounds like, what a parent's, like these can all be nice voices. They can be palatable. They can be happy voices. But if God is like, hey, sis, this is what I need you to do. Right, right, right. And, and you're not able to tune into that frequency because every frequency that you're already tuning into is just so loud and yeah. vibrant yeah. that you're going to miss what God has called for you to do. I love that. It's really key what you said in regards to sitting still, tuning in and listening and being able to hear. You know, so many things can be a distraction. Distractions are distractions, you know. So I'm very intentional about setting intentions. Yeah. You know, and being able to remember, like, the why. Like you said, you wrote things down. I'm the same way. I'll write it down, put it away in a journal. I'll write it down on the goals board. I'll write it in different ways, and I'll come back to it. But some things I've been learning more recently is I got to post it up. Yes. And I got to look at it in the daily so I can remember the why. Yes. Because when that why is associated with the vision. Yes. You know, when God is sharing with you and showing you, okay, ABC, that is the why. You know, why, you know, you do something selflessly and you're committing your time to go speak or come and visit and, you know, present and whatever it is. That why is because he told you to do it. And then that's allowing his light to shine right right through you, you know. So... One more thing I want to ask you, you know, as we're talking about, you know, just intentional and in your day to day operations of, you know, hearing God's voice, moving on that, acting on that, you know, I would say you had to have a lot of faith. Mm-hmm. You had to have a lot of faith and believing and trusting that it was going to work out in the very end. Outside of that, you know, what is a piece of advice someone has given you that you have really gone to and stuck with or has helped you? 
the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, that's a light question. Okay. <laughs> She's being sarcastic, you guys. At first, I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> you really no. live by it. <laughs> oh, the best piece of advice. Um, there are two things that are kind of popping up in my head right now. One was not advice as much as it was a quote uh, that Gabrielle Union said at, at a um, award ceremony once, which really is to say that the light in other people does not diminish your light at all. And that mm. as we actively combine and, and work together, like that's a more luminescent mm. way of living. Mm. So I'm paraphrasing a bit, but she was really thinking about a lot of the infighting and the catfighting that people ascribe to women in certain industries and certainly in the academy or within black culture. And, and unfortunately what people have taught us black culture looks like through a lot of these TV shows, which is absolutely not who we are. We, we have been a communal people for as long as we know we, the black women run our community. And so to show us in such derogatory and stereotypical ways is really quite uh, tragic and, and um, intentional, right. To break down that fabric. Yeah. So in thinking about what Gabrielle Union said in that moment, my <laughs> my mom thinks that my friends and I are nuts because we our compliments trample each other's compliments. We'll be like, no, you're the most amazing woman I've ever seen in life because the intergalactical, you know, universe cannot even hold you. Oh, you're talking about intergalactical. Like we're on a whole nother plane and platform. Like we, it's just like, she was like, you all are wonderful. Okay. Like everybody's wonderful. Like you don't have to be more about powerful affirmations. Right. You guys are writing the book over there. She's like, you don't have to be more wonderful than anybody. Like you're all wonderful. But it was just a way of, of saying like, in a space where everyone is expecting you to tear each other down, mm. like our words can only support each other more and more. And so I, I absolutely, it's, you know, whether it be on Twitter or in real life or whatever, like people are getting the emojis of the universe. They're getting the, the like memes. I'm throwing everything in there. Like, yes, queen, like I, every, you're mm -hmm. getting it every day. Mm -hmm. You're getting flowers from me personally. You're getting a meal, like whatever it is that I can give you as a black woman in particular so that your light can shine, my light can shine. And in combination, our luminescence is so brilliant right. that eyes can't even right. see. Right. Right. So that's one thing that I'm reminded of. And this is very real, you know, which is why I really appreciate Rihanna being one of my dear friends. I mean, we have like these little nicknames we have for each other. Every time we're like text or communicating, we got a new name. Like, hey, pumpkin, hi, pumpkin spice, you yes. know. You know, I won't tell you guys all of them, but I'll just say it's very enlightening. It's very positive energy. And then not even knowing what kind of day either one of us are having. Yes. But when we have that greeting, that positive greeting, that yes. lifting up, it makes the difference yeah. you know and just anyone in your life today it doesn't cost a lot just to offer a positive greeting a positive affirmation sometimes it's tough to do that because you may be feeling so low yeah but you can communicate that to that person you say you know what I'm having a day but I still think you're great yeah I'm having a day and, you know, but you're incredible. Yeah. Just taking that intentional step to yeah. be able to breathe out more positivity into the world. And you were about to say something oh, about no, your just, second. No, that, thank you for that. And it, 
again, as Gabby was saying, it it by no means diminishes me and in fact only makes me better. So Mm -hmm. like the idea that only one person can be top dog or like get the the shine or the attention that blows in the face of everything we know about Mm -hmm. physics or psychology or like that's just not true. Mm -hmm. It's just simply not true. Right, right, right. Um, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to ask you as we're getting ready to wrap up, you know, what is the most key thing you've learned about yourself within the last two years? You are just hitting me with the most simple questions today, Candace. Thanks so much. <laughs> you said two or 10 years? Two. Two. Lord have mercy. You've been back here in Detroit That's, about a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, I got you've you. okay. grown as an individual, as a professional. You have not only two nonprofits that you are leading and working within. You are a leading professor. You are an incredible black female. And one more nugget I wanted <laughs> to save to the very end. She is, in fact, one of our board members. Of yeah. She's a genius. Yeah. And we'll touch more on that in a minute. But just the last two years yeah what have you learned about Rihanna yeah so um if you haven't noticed thus far I use a not a lot of analogies and metaphors to explain um things um so the first day that I moved back to Detroit there was a conference that I was going to so it it dovetailed nicely with my move so um go to this conference and we have a a welcome reception and I eat some food and then folks are about ready to go out and I'm like Oh, I can't wait to show y'all around. I've been talking all this trash for like a past week. Like, oh, you going? I'm gonna show you my favorite Detroit places and. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> so my stomach. I remember that. You had a list when we met. She I was telling me places. Yeah, I still have it. So um, my stomach starts to hurt, and I was like, "Y'all, I'm gonna just go to my room for a little bit um, and and catch up with you in a bit." And I laughed to myself because I was like, dang, that cheese messed me up. Like, now I'm going to have to be vegan. Like, I don't want to be vegan. I really like cheese. Um, So (laughs) I'm in my room thinking this is cheese and food related stuff. And about an hour later, I'm now even worse on the ground, like pressing my stomach into the linoleum floor, like just in so much pain. And I finally (laughs) finally send a text out and I'm like... This is not cheese. Like, I don't know what's going on, but I need some help. People come up, bring Alka-Seltzer, Pepto, and um, I sleep for 10 hours, which is really abnormal for me. I'm not hungry, which is really abnormal for me. And finally, almost 24 hours after this, someone is like, I'm going to drag you to the hospital because something is not right. Hmm. Um, I had acute appendectomy or appendicitis. I had to get an appendectomy immediately, emergency. Wow. and um and by the grace of God, I, it did not rupture and I am still here. Um, but when I share that story and I think about the importance of that being the day that I moved back from Detroit or to Detroit, I think about how toxins were removed for me and that all things are new. All things are new. Old things have mm. been removed. That the things that were once a part of your story no longer need to be with you. They don't have to travel to that next space. They can be expelled immediately with, with God saying it is done. It is finished. Mm. All things are new. I make all things new. Like that has, that was so spelled out so clearly that day that the organ that we don't need anymore, the appendix. Yeah. That used to be thought to be responsible for regulating toxins in our body. That was the thing that, Almost wow. ruptured the day that I moved back to my city. 
Wow, you're talking about an incredible way God is dealing with you. If yeah. that wasn't in a wake a wake up call. Yeah. Yeah. But just so much clarity for your vision moving forward. Yeah. So with all of that in a nutshell, you learned in regards to your experience, you can eliminate toxic people. Yes. Things. Yeah. You don't have to quickly. carry that. You don't have to carry it with you to your next place. If if what you're supposed to do is purposed and envisioned and like it is a part of your story and your narrative, you don't have to take the things that made you who you were to that new space. Wow. Man, I told you guys it was <laughs> going to be incredible. Not only was it insightful, but she was very transparent with us. And that is something that's very important to She's a Genius podcast because every one of us has a story. And every one of us has been impacted by somebody else's story, by them being open, by them sharing and being able to tell you what they went through to help them get to where they are. So I am definitely an advocate of saying don't hide behind your story, build up the strength to be able to stand in front of it and speak out because you went through whatever you went through to help somebody else. And don't let that pain or don't let the experience or even the incredible this and good things, not keeping it to yourself because you didn't go through it for no reason. Don't let it be a waste. But it was odd to be able to help somebody else. So, I mean, if Rihanna had a movie about her life, <laughs> I would just say it would be very intriguing. <laughs> would you watch the movie? Yes. 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 yes, yes. What genre would it fall in? <laughs> oh, Lord. Maybe drama, <laughs> romance, like what? I want, well, I'm going to just project it's going to be romance because the Lord is going to bring that person into my life, All Candy. Right. Let's just go ahead and Woo-hoo. say <laughs> Speaking of, do you hear that? Tune in. <laughs> oh, man. No, it'll, it'll be, you know, I, I think that is what is beautiful about life. It's every genre. Like mm-hmm. at some point, it's horror. It is humor. It is romance. It yeah. is, it's every genre. And yeah. so I'm grateful to have that range and, and to feel those things. Some people don't feel right. love or they don't feel growth, right? I'm, I'm grateful to have had every experience, every genre. Every genre. I love it. I would watch your movie. I would watch it. <laughs> $10, and, you know, just $10. You know, I'm watching it live in action, you know, <laughs> just day to day. And even from when we met, I can see the level of comfort that has grown with that transition, you know, and just in life brings about changes and transitions. And again, as I led into Rihanna is a part of our board for She's a Genius and she is an incredible addition as you have just heard. But the lives that we're going to impact together to be able to help young ladies be able to get past and through mental health and be able to have that exposure and that right hand mentorship of entrepreneurship, leading nonprofits, being a professor, you name it, we're going to be able to get into that and be able to be that support system for the young ladies and for the community as a whole. As we leave out today, we also know that this month we are celebrating Women History Month. My last question for you today, Dr. Anderson, is who is a woman that has significantly influenced your life? Yeah. My family, I did the math on this the other day. We have out of like 17 people, I think 13 women. So that statistically, you know, it just shouldn't be that way. Like, the, you know, straight out the gate, just straight out the gate. So we, we have a significant number of women in our family. And, and as you were asking that question, I'm trying to select one of them mm-hmm. and an, another just pops up like I too am significant. So yes. clearly, you know, my mother had an incredible 
mindset over as as we started this conversation, like you're not going to go around the corner when it's dark. I'm I'm going to keep my eyes on you. And so did my grandma. And so did my aunts and my cousins. Each woman in my family has been such a significant contributor to my experience as a woman, as a black woman in particular, as a black woman who knows her worth and is God fearing and is educated. Like they, they are, I am, I am only a reflection of them. So I, I, I am, people say these great things about me and I'm like, y'all need to see my family. Like Mm -hmm. they are the Mm -hmm. OGs for real, for real. Mm -hmm. Um, And that comes from a very strong family network that they've had. And we have matriarchs in our family who have done whatever they needed to do to survive and to keep their family going. They have created churches and cemeteries and been the first black people to, you know, hold positions in city governance. Like they, I come from a lineage that is just blessed. It's just blessed. It's touched and blessed. So I'm, I'm thinking about the matriarchs in my family and I'll, um, celebrate Elizabeth Baker, who uh, is my grandma, who's not with us in the physical world, but who raised me in a way that that taught me who I am and whose I am. Awesome. I love it. The best way she shaped it, you know, not only is it the incredibleness of having that confidence of speaking up on her own behalf of saying, I am incredible and I am a woman of influence, but the lineage of her family and the history and being able to have that and speak on it. We're grateful to be able to celebrate the women that have made you the woman you are today. Amen. Yes. So this past, what, last month, Black History Month, every day you were taking an active approach to support Black History Month. You had a post where you had a different um, Black entrepreneur that you were supporting and I was following, I was watching because she was fashionable. Every day she (laughs) came with the fashion, you know, whether it was her hat, her jewelry, her t-shirt, her hoodie, whatever it may have been, she made a point to be fashionable but highlight a Black African American in their business and their endeavors and I think that's incredible. It's not about just talking about it but it's about being about it you know not only does she teach it but she's about it and being able to roll up her sleeves and be in action speaking of this social media how can people find you i know we're not trying to give you a lot of people but <laughs> don't y'all email me don't you do it <laughs> <laughs> but where is it that people can just follow and see what you're doing and be able to just stay encouraged by the incredible work you're doing mm-hmm. um where can they look you up yep so i am Rihanna, R-I-A-N-A, Elise, E-L-Y-S-E, Rihanna Elise at all social media. At all social media, you all got that as well as she... Not Snapchat. I won't be snapping because I'm not young, but other, everything else. Yeah, or snap. TikTok. I don't know. That's <laughs> I'm too young or too old for that too. Anyway, everything else, Candace. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> all right. And then on your website, people can also Rihanna find you and get information. Yep, com. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So we want to continue to lift you up and support you as a female entrepreneur, nonprofit owner, just as an incredible woman of influence. Is there anything that we can do to make sure we stand by you and lift you up? Y'all pray for your girl. Pray um, that I'm able to keep balance, that um, whatever negative energy is sometimes in the academy does not come my way, that I can continue to do the work that God has called me to do in a a healthy and happy manner. so that that means a lot to me. This question is is the first I've ever been asked that. So I appreciate that. Um, but but prayer is a mighty thing. And and as you even said earlier, sometimes it's just the text or it's just the the tweet that's like, sis, we're thinking about you. Like we pray that you're well, and and that means a lot too. 
All right. Well, we're praying for you. We love you. Thank we you. appreciate you. We celebrate you. And you all now have her social media handle, <laughs> so you can go on there and just lift her up Amen. and encourage the things she's doing. All right. Well, that's another episode with She's a Genius. We hope that you all were inspired and enlightened by the genius we have here with us today. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and always listen on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Store, and Spotify. This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. Back from my city, yeah, you know that's how I roll. Love all my people, yeah, you know that's how I flow. Right from my city, yeah, you know that's how I roll. Love from my people, yeah, you know that's how I flow.